From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's fundamentally a myth that one person persuades another. I can try to convince you to believe something you don't currently believe that you currently believe the opposite of. And I can maybe plant an idea, shake your confidence, even though you probably wouldn't admit it at the time. In fact, you maybe get more strident. But the truth is that over time, if you're going to change your mind, you're going to change your own mind. That's John Lovett. And today, we're talking with him, John Favreau, and Tommy Vitor. They're three of the hosts of Pod Save America, one of the most popular podcasts in the country. It's a great conversation, but before we get to that, time for your questions. Our first question this week comes from Twitter, from the user Valerie Stitchery from Brooklyn, New York. And Valerie Stitchery asks, what could the guilty plea of Reza Zarab mean for Flynn, Trump, and the Mueller investigation? So for those of you who don't know, Reza Zarab is the name of a an Iranian gold trader who was living in Turkey for the last number of years and is close to the president of Turkey, Erdogan. Reza Zarab is someone who was arrested and charged by my office when I was the United States attorney about a year and a half ago. He was charged with violating uh, sanctions against Iran and engaging in money laundering activities as well. I want to be careful what I say about this case because I did oversee it for a period of time. And I'm, so I'm not going to talk about things that I know that are inappropriate to discuss, but I've been on the sidelines for seven months, and the only thing I know about the case are things I read in the paper. No one tells me about them, and I don't ask about them. So the trial against Reza Zarab and one of his co-defendants was scheduled to start this week. And on the eve of trial, as sometimes happens, it turns out that Reza Zarab had decided to flip and cooperate with the government and become a witness against his co-defendant. And so that's happening as we speak, and we don't know what the result of that will be. And on the question of whether or not the guilty plea of Reza Zarab means something for Flynn or Trump or the Mueller investigation, well, there, there is an interesting bit of overlap, and it's complicated, so I'm trying to figure out how to say it as quickly as I can so we can get on to the interview. If you're following the news, you know that Michael Flynn, reportedly at the time he was a national security advisor designee in December of 2016, had meetings with members of the Turkish government and was actually working on their behalf. And the reporting is that Michael Flynn and his son were prepared to accept a huge sum of money, some say to the tune of $15 million, if they would agree when Michael Flynn became the national security advisor to essentially kidnap a person named Fatullah Gulen, who is a Muslim cleric and resident of the United States living in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, kidnap him and send him back to Turkey because President Erdogan was his rival and wants to deal with him there. Obviously, that would be an extraordinary uh, act of uh, misconduct, uh, criminal, I think, clearly, if it's true and it can be proven. And there's also talk about a couple of other things that may have been part of that deal, one of which was, as I said, the kidnapping and rendering of Fatullah Gulen back to Turkey. The second is potentially the request to cause the case against Reza Zarab to be dismissed from federal court. And there's some speculation that the third might have been as part of the deal with Turkey and President Erdogan for me to be fired. And I don't say that out of thin air. We know from reporting by the Washington Post that when President Erdogan came to visit the United States before the election, he had a specific meeting with Vice President Biden where he asked that I be fired. President Erdogan is extremely upset about the case against his associate. I can say he falsely claims it is based on politics or something other than the facts and the, and the law. And I can assure everyone that that's not the case. The government of Turkey 
has recently t- undertaken the extraordinary step of opening up an investigation, naming me and my successor as U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, June Kim, because they're trying to, I think, cast a lot of aspersions on the case that is ongoing in the Southern District of New York. Among other things, they have claimed that I and other folks have been followers of this cleric, Fatula Gulen, who lives in the Poconos. I can tell you that until the day that Reza Zarab was arrested when he came into the United States, I had never heard of Fatula Gulen, and I didn't know what a Gulenist was. So there's a lot of nonsense coming out of the government of Turkey on this point. The thing I can say, I think appropriately, is that the folks who are the career professionals in the United States Attorney's Office base their decisions and their actions on the facts and the law. And the one development that's of significance recently is that Reza Zarab has pled guilty to all the charges leveled against him, and on top of that, other charges as well. So his case is effectively over, and the allegations against him are effectively proven, and we'll see what happens with the rest of the trial. Our next question comes from our voicemail. Hi, Preet. My name is Greg, calling from Vancouver, British Columbia. A lot of talk this week about Michael Flynn potentially flipping, and I'm curious how this process works. Obviously, Flynn doesn't want to expose himself without having a deal in place. I'm sure the prosecutors don't want to give him a deal without knowing what he has. So how does this negotiation happen? Love the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for that question, Greg, from Vancouver, Canada. Some coincidence that I have a new producer, Chris Barube, also from Canada. We'll be answering questions from Americans uh, on next week's show. I think there's some confusion about how cooperation works, and there are a couple of things that have to be true before federal prosecutors, like those in my office and on Special Counsel Mueller's team, will agree to have a deal with someone like Mike Flynn. First of all, Mike Flynn has to convince the prosecutors that he's prepared to tell them everything he knows about all the bad things he's ever done and that he's aware of that other people have done, whether that goes all the way up to the president of the United States or extends to members of his family. He has to come clean about all of it. And not only does he have to come clean with respect to all of it, he has to own up to it. And like George Papadopoulos, he has to plead guilty to it. And there's a third thing that's required. It's not enough that you've decided to come clean or own up to your own crimes. You have to be in a position, generally, to provide information that is of substantial assistance to the authorities. And substantial assistance usually means testimony that will help to prosecute someone else. And usually it's the case, almost always the case, that you don't cooperate downstream, you cooperate upstream. So there's been a bit in the news in recent days about the fact that Michael Flynn's lawyer has withdrawn from something that's called a joint defense agreement, which has signaled to a lot of experts, and I believe this to be true also, that he's probably exploring a plea deal. It doesn't mean that the plea deal is done. It doesn't mean the prosecutors will end up signing him up. But it does mean, I think, that they're likely in conversation, and we could hear the results of that any day. So there's been a lot of talk and discussion about whether Bob Mueller is looking at obstruction of justice on the part of the President of the United States related to the firing of Jim Comey and the moment when Jim Comey says he was told by the President, could you lay off of Michael Flynn? Well, here's the interesting thing about that. If Mike Flynn knowing he was under investigation at the time he was fired, had a conversation with the president and said something like, you know, hey, Mr. President, could you help me out with this investigation? Could you get me off the hook? Could you make sure they don't come after me and my son? And the president of the United States agreed to that. And then we know in his mind that one of the purposes in asking Jim Comey to lay off was to obstruct an investigation. 
because he had an agreement with Michael Flynn, well, that could really be something. And combined with the fact that after Comey was told to lay off, he didn't, and then Trump then fired him, that adds more grist, I think, to an accusation of obstruction. Again, we don't know if those conversations happened, but you can bet that the Mueller team is probing Michael Flynn, if he's cooperating, about every conversation Flynn has had, not only with the Turks, not only with the Russians, not only with members of the cabinet, uh, not only with members of Donald Trump's family, and not only with his son, but also with the president, Donald Trump himself. The last question comes from Twitter user Burke Hud from Clay, New York. And the question is this. U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Kelly, appointed by Trump, rules in favor of Trump's CFPB, that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, temporary leader, Mick Mulvaney. And we are to believe this was an unbiased decision? So that's a complicated question, and it goes to an issue that's been uh, popular in legal circles and political circles for the past number of weeks and months. The CFPB is an agency that was set up under the Obama administration. It was first led by now Senator Elizabeth Warren. The leadership of that agency was passed to a guy by the name of Richard Cordray, who used to be the Attorney General of Ohio. In fact, Richard and I had become friends and colleagues during his time at the head of that agency. And the first criminal case referral made by the CFPB was made to our office. And we actually did a case together that helped, I think, a lot of consumers. And and we arrested a number of people in connection with that as well. But Richard Cordray decided to step down from the leadership position in the last few days. And the controversy in the question is who becomes the acting interim leader of the agency? Should it be his deputy, Richard Cordray's deputy, that the Dodd-Frank statute suggests it should be? Or based on a separate federal statute that's a little bit broader, should that person be able to be filled by Donald Trump? Obviously, the president, Trump, thinks it should be his call, and the CFPB person in place thinks it should be her call. One important thing to remember is this controversy is only related to who's going to be the interim director. Nobody disputes that President Trump can appoint a permanent director, and that person will take over at some point. One might think, by the way, that Mick Mulvaney, who's also the head of the the budget office of the White House, has another full-time job, and so why that's wise is unclear. On the question of whether or not this was an unbiased decision, here's the one thing I will say. It is important for people to respect the judiciary and to respect the decisions made by members of the bench. And you have an appeals process and things wind their way through the courts. And I think there should be respect for the courts. One person, I will say, who is doing a lot to undermine confidence in whether judges' decisions are based on politics rather than the law is a man by the name of Donald Trump. And part of the reason I think this question is being asked from the perspective of someone who doesn't agree with Donald Trump is because Donald Trump himself has sown a lot of confusion and mistrust among people when he disagrees with a decision made by a judge. And this is a little bit, potentially, you know, the chickens coming home to roost. If you're the president and you decide you don't like opinions by certain judges and you undermine them and attack them and say it's because they're of a certain ethnicity or they're appointed by a particular judge, that same kind of mistrust, I think, and disbelief is going to come back at him. And I think that's evidenced by the question you're asking here. I think it's useful for us to be a little bit more trusting of the judiciary and respectful of the judges who make these decisions who have life tenure. 
My guests this week are three of the co-hosts of Pod Save America. Look, probably a lot of you listen to Pod Save America. It's an unbelievably popular program in the country. It's taken America by storm. But one of the things I think it's really important about it is it has caused a lot of people, particularly young people, to become engaged in ideas, in politics, in their democracy like never before. And for that, I think we owe them something. So please listen. We've got John Favreau. Hi. John Lovett. Yo. Boo. Tommy Vitor. Hello. I don't know where Pfeiffer is. I only came for Pfeiffer. <laughs> lives in San Francisco. Yeah, we have some disappointing so how news. how does that work with him? <laughs> he calls in every Thursday. I see. Or just from his Do you house. you pay him? Does he get paid the same amount? Um, yeah, he, he, gets, he gets what he deserves. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> ominous, man. <laughs> who's, who's, who's the boss? Oh, God. Oh, you want to know titles? Uh, yeah, we have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Tommy Vitor. I am the CEO. I'm John Lovett, chairman of the board. And I'm John Favreau, I'm president. We even made a joke of our professional titles. We have five podcasts. We just launched a sixth, Get Jason it. Kanders. One more. We have uh, Quick Conversations. That was, that's five, isn't it? That's six. Oh, that's oh right, because here's yeah. the five up here. So, that's, so we just launched seven. And eight, nine, eight and nine right behind. And eight and nine are right behind. Do you think that, that, that there are too many people who have podcasts? Probably. Uh, yeah. You know what they say. What do they say? What do they say, Tommy? Opinions are like podcasts. <laughs> Everybody's got one. Uh, our idea. <laughs> no, it didn't work. My dad's no, what, That's my dad's favorite. Did you hear what Conan O'Brien, Conan O'Brien tweeted over the weekend? Yes. I believe when everyone dies, they become a podcast. <laughs> so I did see that. But our, I mean, our show, I think, sort of spanned mm. the gamut between Pod Save America is very political. My show's foreign policy. Love it is politics, but also culture and humor. Our, our hope is to create a whole bunch of new shows that are about issues that are sort of politics adjacent to try to bring people into these conversations and not just force feed them punditry at all times. What does that mean, adjacent? So Ira Madison, who we just announced, he'll have a podcast that's about culture, but also touch on some politics. Um, what else? Well, like Jason, Jason Kander's podcast, right? It's, it's about politics, but it's not going to be about the news cycle. It's going to like dive into a specific issue. Like his first one looks at criminal justice reform. Um, and so these are political issues, but it's not going to be tied to the news cycle as much so that, you know, Pod Save America gets into what's happening like right now and what, what, to, what to make of what's going that, that's on. That's your most news. topical. That's your most topical yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that, it, that podcasts and discussion of politics and news is such a good marriage? I think it's because the current discussion about politics and news uh, mainly happens on cable news networks it happens on the sunday shows um and it's, it's sort of canned it's a lot of talking points there's not a lot of time for sort of nuanced subtle conversation and just the medium of a podcast gives you the time to have a substantive conversation that you don't get to have many other places but i still don't get that if there happens to be a huge market like it seems that there is and you're taking advantage of it and congratulations to you for it there seems to be a huge market. And the fact that I can have a podcast and can be somewhat successful and I used to be United States Attorney tells you that there's a lot of market for good, thoughtful, at-length conversations about politics, culture, news, etc. Mm -hmm. Why is it that that can't, that just can't work on television? It might. Yeah, I actually think it might. I mean, we're... Are you thinking about that? At some point, we, we're, we're thinking about video. You know, our goal is to focus on 
sort of building up the podcast first and bringing on sort of a diverse array of talent. So it's not just the three of us. So we want to focus on that with the podcast first. But I think down the road, you know, we've been t- we've talked about video stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the question is less would a podcast work on television and more what can TV learn from what's working on podcasts and adapt to that medium? I mean, we see some of the most frivolous conversations on cable news, but then CNN does these substantive policy debates where they have like Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz or, or what have you. And those are smart and detailed and interesting, but they bring the kind of drama of a confrontation and kind of do something that's more substantive and more at length on television in a way, in a way that works. I mean, there are things that just... Look, I mean, I listen to audiobooks, but I'm not going to turn on television and watch somebody read a loud book. <laughs> Did you ever watch the Yule, the Yule Log? Was that? Yeah. Was that yeah. I believe you just For named hours. the C-SPAN business model. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, also, hey, C-SPAN, I didn't mean that. C-SPAN is great. That was Tommy. I, I mean, there is like a, there's a formatting and a pacing and a structure to TV news that has gotten developed over time and was stolen by, you know, ESPN and various sports shows and something we've all become accustomed to and familiar with. And there's a beginning and there's a fight and there's a payoff and they throw it a break. And yeah, I mean, it's sure it's a, it's a good way to sort of get a touch of news. I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, how many millions of people are actually in the market for that. And is it just a small number of people who are sort of liberal? And this is their version of, of talk radio that has been a bastion of conservative discussion for a long time and this is the liberal version of that or do you think it's something more it's funny i think i think there's probably a fairly constant demand for all of these things if they're good good long form good tv whatever it's just every six months you have some new executive who comes in and declares that he or she is going to rip up the script and now we're going to long form and now we're going to quick hitting news so it's just like constant churn and relearning where we end up going back to the same formatting and structure but i think if you just have a good conversation about things that matter Hopefully, you can get it in front of people and they'll listen. Also, if you've ever listened to right wing radio, it goes on for some time. <laughs> That's long There's form. Like, they're like, yeah, they're yeah. three hour shows sometimes. It's a radio. You know, I used to, when I was in Massachusetts, um, I grew up there. I would drive up to, um, I interned on Gene Shaheen's Senate campaign in 2002, and it was like a 45-minute drive from my house. And I would listen to a right-wing radio just to hear what the other side's doing. Those shows would last from like 3 to 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, and they covered everything. How many accents did you get into while you were listening to yeah, that? Purposefully. Yeah. <laughs> Driving <laughs> off the road. Um, yeah, so those, I do think there's an appetite for more longer conversation. I think there has been for a while, but I think, you know, I do think it's a little bit of a backlash to waking up, seeing 45 headlines and not being able to consume any one story, you know? What, what problem, if I can put it this way, what problem do you think you're addressing or solving through this podcast, through your podcast and the other podcasts? I think there's a whole bunch of people who, especially young people, who actually hadn't paid attention to politics that closely before Trump was elected. And now they're paying attention to this circus. And they want to know about politics. They want to know some of the basics. They want to, you know, find out how things work, how government works. And all they're getting is sort of Trump headlines. And so what we try to do once in a while is let them know. So this is how other administrations have worked. We obviously talk a lot about Obama's administration, but sometimes we'll often say, this is the way it was in the Bush administration and the Clinton administration. And this is why this is so different. So I think there's a, there's a whole crew of people coming up now, generation of people who um, are paying attention f- to politics for the very first time. So do you think it's a, a largely educational function? I think one function is educational. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we said this when we when we launched the company that we were trying to do things that inform, entertain, and inspire action. And 
it was a slogan, but it also happens to be true and like subtly a difficult thing to get right because, you know, we want to make sure we're having a substantive conversation that helps people break down and understand what's going on. Uh, we want to do it in a way that's accessible and entertaining and not boring, even though we're spending, you know, half an hour talking about tax reform and judicial nominations. Um, and Trying to this, leaven it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to keep it light. Got to keep it light. Um, and then, and especially, by the way, when, you know, we've made our worst person president, it's dark and, and hard, to, <laughs> hard to suffer through. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people feel like this is a, a weight that they're kind of carrying around every day, this crazy thing that's happening in our politics. So it is important to keep people, I think, to be part of keeping people's spirits up and, and breaking it down without being too dour all the time. So let me ask you about two things. One, I want to ask about persuading people and then talk about young people, because every four years we talk about young people. Do you think people are more or less persuadable to another point of view than they were before, like two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? I think it depends on what their media diet is. I think if they are casual observers of the news, they're more persuadable than people who wake up and watch Fox or read Breitbart or have this sort of steady diet of conservative media or very liberal media, right? I think if you if you are a close observer of politics and you're reading and you're watching all the time, I bet you're probably less persuadable than young people who may be interested in politics, may be interested in government, and maybe they're in school and they're not sure and they haven't quite formed their views yet. I think those people are probably a little more persuadable. That's my guess. Yeah, I, I feel like there's two kinds of persuasion that are like sort of on the table. One is I think harder, which is people that maybe lean Republican or dissatisfied with Trump. I think, you know, we've seen in Virginia, like, oh, maybe maybe these people are so outraged that they'll, that they'll cut across the aisle. At the same time, maybe they won't at a presidential year. We just don't know. And I don't know the answer to that. But I think that there is a group of people that are persuadable from politics doesn't matter. I'm not going to pay attention. I don't care what happens uh, to, oh, this affects my life. Uh, Trump, Trump winning actually scares me in a way I didn't, I didn't understand the stakes. I didn't understand what mattered. I think that there's a lot of people out there that have been persuaded from the not voting, not paying attention, not reading the news. I don't understand it. It's not for me column into the group of people that we can reach, right? That can be turned out, that can uh, come to see the value of participation. The reason I ask is you worry that the shows, whether it's you know my show or, or your shows or Fox News or anything on CNN, that we're all in this bubble talking to people who already agree with us. And maybe you can still edify them and put things in context and alter their perspective somewhat. But fundamentally, you know, a lot of behavioral studies have shown this, and I think it's a good thing, that people listen to things that affirm what they think otherwise. And I'm sure that's true of, of every kind of show, radio, television, podcast, that, that attempts to talk about politics. And I just wonder if you have you know, other thoughts on how we break beyond that because if you if you know if you believe in your views and you think you're thoughtful and I think you guys are I like to think that I am. You want people beyond their comfort zone coming and listening to you and saying you know that was not a bad not a bad thing. Do you think do you think about how to break out into those other audiences? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is sort of moving past the sort of false balance construct that we used to think made news palatable to all people. And I think where we are, where we would like to take this is an authenticity construct where you may hate our guts and hate our political views, but we're going to tell you when the Nobody Democrats- Nobody hates you guys. Maybe. Well, debatable. You're gonna, we'll tell you when the Democrats are terrible and we'll tell you when the Republicans are terrible. We may happen to believe that the, the latter is true more often, but at least we're going to be honest with you about it. And we're going to say it in a way that makes you laugh. But I think the other piece of this is 
a show is not a candidate, right? So our, we don't have a job, which is to persuade or get your vote. But if you can arm people with good arguments, good information, good data to talk to their friends and family, I think that is probably the best way to actually get people to, to move voters. That's such an important point because I think like where you, you're welcome, Tommy. <laughs> we're really nice to each other too. Love um, didn't think it was a good point. <laughs> He's shaking his head. I'm well, just sitting here wondering why no one's ever, we're never let nice during our show. Maybe we should think about bringing some of that energy back into Pod Save America <laughs> instead of this roiling, walking over hot coals every day. I, uh, I think we have a formula that works. Um, <laughs> I don't think we're going to persuade too many people from on high, you know, at our podcast. But we know from being in campaigns that the best persuasion happens not because Barack Obama goes and addresses a crowd, but because neighbors start talking to their neighbors and friends start talking to their friends. And that happens on Facebook. And you go and you say, I just saw this candidate speak and they said something really inspiring and uh, here's some facts from that and what do you think and and you you sort of build movements and organize with people in your social circle. Right. You poke your neighbor on Facebook, you, you right. message them a Benghazi meme and then you got them. <laughs> and it all lot. works from there. A picture of Bernie Sanders at a Russian Drew to troll us and then you're off to the races. Yeah. I'm something of a student of oratory and speeches uh, not like you guys but you know, the, the, the lesson of, of that people say about speechwriting is that, that people will not remember the thing that you said. They will not remember a fact that you uttered or an argument that you made, but they will remember how you made them feel about something. Is that good or bad, John? I, I think it's, you know, it's, I, would it be better if people had like an enlightenment version of how arguments work? Like they hear all the facts and process them and it changes their minds. I mean, I don't know, maybe it'd be better to live in that world. We don't persuasion i think you can persuade people look you know one thing that happens whenever the president a president either party gives the state of the union um the press corps will all, all say it's boring oh it's a, just a plodding speech ran through the laundry list and then the polling and the the dials will all show how popular it was uh because a lot of people are hearing things they don't often hear they're being reminded of policy ideas they think are good that they like so i think that is a form of that's that's important and that is about running through like here's what i want to do and here's why but i i, I think that's a it's fundamentally a myth that that one person persuades another that that, you know, I can try to convince you to believe something you don't currently believe that you currently believe the opposite of. And I can maybe plant an idea. I can maybe start a process. I can shake your confidence, even though you probably wouldn't admit it at the time. In fact, you maybe get more strident. But the truth is that over time, if you're going to change your mind, you're going to change your own mind. And you're going to change it through the things that you choose to look at, the things that you choose to care about, the things that affect you in your life. You're not going to come to believe that climate change is real from believing it's a hoax because of a politician's speech. You might because you see windmills popping up in your neighborhood. You might because you see a neighbor talk to you about why they care about it. And slowly over time, without you ever realizing it, your mind has changed, but no one no one owns it except you. It's why there are always polls every every four years that show that the person who ends up being the nominee uh, is someone that the majority of voters in that party said they would never vote for because people don't know when they're going to change their mind. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. How do you think about persuasion with a jury? Because it feels like that's the closest thing you're going to get to a random assortment of voters. Yeah. So that, look, so which is why maybe people like Obama, who's a trained lawyer, um, people like me. John Edwards, think, a heroic figure in the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Four trials. What happened to that guy? Four trials. Yeah. You're supposed to, the courts of law work in a particular way. And there are particular rules that you have to go by. I, I gave a speech once recently making the analogy between what happens in the courtroom and how some of those things would be great if we did them in real life in politics. It was I gave a, a commencement address at Seton Hall Law School last year. What's great in a courtroom is uh, not the affirmative way in which you have to make your, your argument and prove your case, but there are a lot of things that are not allowed. 
You're not allowed to prey on the fears of the jury. You're not allowed to use um, inappropriate arguments about hatred. You're not allowed uh, to lie. You're not allowed to do all sorts of things in the courtroom that's policed by a judge. So you're not appealing to people's basic, basest instincts. And that to me is just as important to having a fair process and having a fair decision-making you know, method on the part of you know, 12 ordinary people in a criminal trial than just making sure that affirmatively you're speaking from the evidence and from logic and from facts. We don't have that in the real world. And I think that's a big problem. It's interesting. It's like, but it's such a difference in that a group of jurors, you're, they're starting with no information and you slowly get them to have information. So whatever biases they come, they don't have specific bias. They don't come with a partisan angle on the case, right? Ideally. Well, ideally they have been screened out. Right. So if they have a view about this particular, if they have a view of John Lovett himself who's on trial, then they should not be on the trial at all. But but they do come, you know, sometimes with some biases about, you know, the criminal justice system. You try to screen those out, but everyone's a human being and they show up in the jury box and some of them are a little bit anti-police and maybe they don't say something in the voir dire or a little bit, you know, pro-cop or a little bit, you know... Uh, racist as hell? Racist as hell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how about that? A little, bit, a little yeah. bit racist as hell and you hope you screen those things out. Right. Um, but yeah, but that's different because... But, but I guess... There are also people in the public who you, John, were saying before, who don't have a strong view about something, you know, the, I guess the independents or the sort of, you know, gettable people. And I don't know that we do enough to try to persuade those people to, to folk side. I think every campaign will hand ring over this until election day, which is how much time and attention do you spend trying to convince that small sliver of persuadable people versus turn out your own people? And I think probably the failure of 2016 was both. But if we turned out more Democrats in a variety of places, we could have won. But going back and to what, none of us would be sitting here. We'd all be doing very different things. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I want to go back to, 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 yeah. to say another, make another point in response to the question you asked about how you do it in a court. It's still the case, though, that the best trial lawyers, prosecutors or defense lawyers, also have to do two other things, not just argue the facts and logic. They have to be credible and genuine, and they have to look like they're not you know, um, making stuff up. You know, the, the principal rule for any defense lawyer in the world is you have to look like you believe your client. That's why they use their first name when they talk about their client. That's why they put their hands on the, you know, during breaks. There's all sorts of psychological things that are going on. But also true of the prosecutor. The prosecutor can never look like he's or she is afraid of the defendant. That's why we sometimes point at the beginning and say, oh, this man committed that crime. And also have conviction. And conviction can be broadcast in a lot of different ways, not just from arguing you know, you know, quietly and professionally about the facts, you have to be sometimes indignant about the crimes that were committed and about the things that are going on in the courtroom. Um, and then second, and this is sort of, I guess also relates to how you persuade people of policy issues, stories help and analogies help. You know, we did, we did a trial against, uh, you know, a big time public corruption official, publicly corrupt official, we thought. And people didn't understand how it is that a politician, just by making a couple of phone calls, you know, is a big deal. Like, how could that have, you know, been an extortion or how could that have put pressure on someone? How does that? And, and the prosecutor did a, an amazing job in that case where he cited from a poem by Shel Silverstein. And it was about a, it was about a gorilla. And it's about a kid saying, you know, I don't understand. I got a pet gorilla for my birthday, I think. And he shows up at school. And as soon as, you know, the gorilla started coming with me to school, kids gave me their lunch. I got an A <laughs> on every test. No one made me turn in my homework. That was more persuasive, I think, in a lot of ways than, than reading from the statute on bribery. Yeah. Is the gorilla Jared Kushner? <laughs> I saw, I saw this case once Kushner. where this, this guy was accused of murder, 
couldn't get fair representation, calls his cousin. Cousin comes up from New York, uh, <laughs> decides to represent him. Yeah. Uh, and he's old fashioned. He's, he's not like this old fashioned town. He's like a city guy. He doesn't have the right clothes. The judge hates him, but he puts on a great show uh, involving glasses and the right car and the right tires. He even puts his uh, fiance. Yeah, we all know where stand. this is going. This is. It's called my cousin it's Vinny. My cousin Vinny. <laughs> I was waiting to see if you. Were... I had no idea what you were talking about. I, I hate you so much. It's a very significant film. <laughs> it's a very significant um, film. But the, the, your point about credibility is key in politics too, because I think the politicians that have any chance of persuading people, people have to trust them. And so, what is it that makes you trust a politician? Well, you feel like you know them. Maybe they tell a joke. Maybe they see, you know, they seem authentic. They don't seem like they're bullshitting you. They don't read from talking points. They don't use, you know, sound bites all the time. Like, you're only going to be persuaded by someone who you, at least you think you know and that you trust. One last question on this, on this issue of persuasion, because it, it's, it is what I think about a lot. Because if the whole point is, you know, you care about a certain issue, the more people you have who believe in your side of it, then you can make progress in the way that you as a citizen want it to be made. And not only in my adult life, but in my sort of adult middle-aged life, views in this country have changed so much on, for example, gay marriage. And I, I don't think, I mean, think about where, where, where your former boss, the president of the United States was as a senator on this issue, or where Hillary Clinton was on this issue. I mean, they all, they all followed public opinion. They just followed it. Right, but the question I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting at is, how did public opi opinion change so much? I mean, the arguments were the same. It seems to me the statistics or whatever, you know, sort of logical argument about that issue didn't really change much, but I feel like the narrative changed somehow because of what? What Tommy was talking about in a, in a good way, emotion and stories. What do you make of that? None of this change starts from, you know, a politician or a leader coming out or a court decision coming from the top and saying, okay, this is, this is what's going to be right now. This is what's going to be accepted. It starts from these grassroots movements and the gay, you know, the gay rights movement has been going on for decades to reach the point where it seemed acceptable and, and more people were in favor of it. And it was a cultural thing too. I mean, everyone, you know, sort of laughed at Joe Biden when he went out and say, oh, well, it was on will and grace and that made it normal. But I think, I think cultural Ellen moments like that, Ellen mattered. Ellen yeah, like, mattered, will and grace mattered. I think people coming out mattered. I think culture matters an older and generation, the culture matters. The, just, people growing older and a generation of people that were stridently against gay marriage uh, because it was not something that was ever discussed as a totally out there idea. Uh, that generation passes on and a new generation comes of age. I think there's some persuasion but you know what's in the middle. But you know what's interesting about that is I sort of thought like a lot of these cultural issues would be solved when an older generation moved on and a younger generation came up. But you haven't seen that with abortion rights opinion polling. And I wonder why that is hardened in a way that uh, support for gay marriage has not been. Or guns. There does not seem to be a lot of persuading in either direction going on on guns. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's weird, right? I, I, I don't gay, get it. Well, I mean, I think the debate over abortion is different than a generational debate. It's a cultural debate in a way that doesn't have anything to do with the younger people versus older people. Gay marriage, I mean, for, for our generation... Being accepting of gay people is a shibboleth. It's it's a it's something that if you don't do, you're not. It seems like well, how can we have a conversation? How can you be someone I agree with on anything else? How can we even have a conversation? It's such a basic entry level but thing. It, but how did it become that? Because it wasn't when I was a kid. When people started coming out more publicly, 
one person did, did it and then three people do it and then 10 people do it. And suddenly you start knowing friends and family who are gay who, are, who have come out. And that it, that was all hidden before. And I, mean, I don't think it's not the same as I think abortion is different. You know, yeah. you, you don't start knowing a whole bunch of people. Who, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's something that people keep quieter to themselves, I think. Like like Rob Portman's son being gay, changing his mind on the issue, right, is an example that has played out for conservatives, Republicans, liberals, you know, liberals who thought they were okay with, with gay rights. Then all of a sudden there's a gay person in their family uh, and they realize actually they had some some notions. They weren't, they, you know, oh, of course I'm comfortable with it. But I mean, you know, I thought my son was going to get married to a woman and have kids or I thought my daughter was going to meet a nice man and get married, right? They have to come to terms with something in their own lives and force them to change some ideas or think through some things. And again, it goes back to what you were saying, to what we were saying about, about persuasion, that, that uh, it's not someone telling you that love trumps hate. It's not someone telling you what to think about the issue. Here's how you're supposed to feel about it. You have to slowly, if, if anything, that pushes somebody in the other direction. Right. What you're saying is- People have to learn how to feel about something and take time and, and, and come to understand it in their own way. Right. But I totally agree with that. But that sounds like you're saying that people have to come to a process uh, and come to a certain view about something through self-discovery. But if you just let everyone sort of self-discover the right thing over time- who knows if they're going to get there or not? Or is it a combination of all these things? Yeah, I mean, this is what I think is the the risk of the kind of propaganda outfits on the right and why there is such a fundamental difference between what happens in right-wing media from Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and Breitbart than what happens on the left, whether it's MSNBC or Pod Save America or what have you. That in a lot of ways, because that's so slanted and because it has such an agenda and it is intellectually dishonest in a fundamental way, it's almost like an inoculation against this kind of self-discovery, that if you're cloistered into this specific kind of news that doesn't show things that force you to question your previous held notions, that covers Virginia for five minutes because the election didn't go your way, that that doesn't expose you. You know, when Donald Trump makes five different arguments around Russia in three days, Fox News doesn't put a good spin on it. They just don't show it. They just don't show the parts that don't help them make their case. And I think that is what makes it so difficult because, yes, like it or not, political opinions are something we come to on our own. We don't, no one gets forced into believing something. It's not possible. Do you guys believe that uh, Ronald Reagan was an effective communicator? Effective. See, I go back and read his, I always read a lot of his speeches and I think there, I think he was a great communicator. I don't know if he was effective because I, I, you know, I was born in 1981, so states. I don't know. The guy won 49 states. Yeah, I guess so. Books. I yeah. guess so. But I, I can never tell the difference between. So he was a great communicator, clearly, because he, you know, he delivered some really wonderful speeches. But did they move people or did he win 49 states for larger structural reasons, which we never focus on in politics because we did. always focus but on. I'm not just talking about the speeches. I mean, just uh, so when he can, when he talked to, to people, both at rallies and also when he addressed the nation, Whatever you thought of his policies, um, I think most people would say it was effective. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I, I'd yeah. say it's effective. Absolutely. Shining city on the hill, and when yeah. he's talking about, and he's at D Day in Normandy. It, I mean, well, it, like, it, it tells stories. He tells good. He told good stories. A two-term, a two-term president who, in many ways, shifted our politics to the right, who inspired a generation of conservative activists to carry on his torch. I mean, I think, yeah. I think that's effective. Right. Absolutely. Do you think that? I mean, if, if one of the definitions of effective is he got his point across, um, he inspired people to follow him. Uh, he maybe persuaded some people to his point of view. He did very well with independence, if I remember history correctly, going back a long time. Do you think Barack Obama was an effective communicator? And I, I know you have a conflict of interest there, right. but do you think he was? I do. Um, again, 
two-term president. I think he moved much of the party firmly towards a progressive tradition. I think in the 90s, we went through a Clinton presidency where Clinton was constantly trying to sort of pull the party towards the center because it was often playing defense against Republicans who had won for so many years. And with Obama, there was sort of sort of unafraid of an unapologetically progressive in a lot of ways. Third question in the series, Tommy. Please. Do you think that Donald Trump is an effective communicator? Well, if we're judging by the same standard we judge Reagan and Obama by, he's won one national election, so he's done pretty well leading up to the presidency. But I don't think you could call someone sitting at a 33% approval rate of rating effective in any way or someone who sort of failed to well I, no, but he won he beats he beats 16 15 or 16 he was a established very... republicans and do you but do you do you agree that part of the reason that is I mean I watched all those debates they were I thought they were very entertaining and part of it was he he was in many ways the most effective communicator on the debate stage yeah he he's a great entertainer he made the debates interesting. He is uh, uh, he is like a triumph the insult candidate. You know, he he beat down his opponents and emasculated them, and and was incredibly <laughs> effective at that. But I think like if we're defining communicator as persuasion in bringing people along and changing their minds, I don't know that he's done. He brought a lot of people. Any of that? I think a lot of people to vote for him job. over Jeb Bush. He did. He got a you lot put... of primary. <laughs> hold on. He got a lot of primary voters who were predisposed to believe. The worldview of everyone on that stage, all 16 of those yahoos, he brought them to his tribe. I think he very effectively communicates to the Republican base. Yes. I think he and he reflects um, a lot of their hopes and fears about politics very well. I don't think he's he has not proven yet that he can communicate effectively beyond that narrow base, even in the election because, you know, he only captured, you know, what, 43% of the popular vote. He exposed the weakness of that field more than his own strength. I mean, if Donald Trump entered a judo tournament for 13-year-olds, he would probably win, but he would not have a black belt. You know, he'd just have beaten up some children. So uh, uh, I just, uh, we have to take it with a grain of movie is that? What movie is that from? <laughs> I think that's actually <laughs> a side belt. No. That's Karate a side belt. Five. Yeah, yeah, that's no. a side no, That was Rand actually. Paul versus a neighbor. Uh, but... You know, Subject. The, the, that, that he had a sixth sense for what the base wanted, that he, ha, that he is TV good, reality TV good, is a strength that he has. We shouldn't uh, lose our heads. He is still what he seems to be to us. Are young people ever going to come out and vote uh, in high numbers? I'm very hopeful by what we just saw in Virginia, that in an off-year election where young people typically do not vote, turnout was up. Um, over 2013, certainly, it, it was higher than anyone thought in the, in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I think if we can maintain that increased turnout in 18 and then do better in 2020 with turnout than we did in 2016, then, you know, I mean, Obama showed that this is possible in 2008, 2012. He almost got there again. Uh, youth turnout went down a little bit in 2012, but not by that much. I think the path is there, and I'm hopeful, but I think there's enormous risk there, too, because part of Donald Trump's appeal is that he's a troll, he's a jerk, there's something anti-establishment about liking him, it feels subversive in a weird way, and that's appealing to your 19, 18-year-old, 20-year-old kids 
in a lot of places for a lot of kids. And we need to help them understand the stakes of the elections that are coming up in 2018 and 2020 and what it means for them. I, I laughed my self silly when when Trump would hammer Rand Paul's haircut or or low energy jab. I thought it was hilarious, like everybody Particularly else. Particularly Marco, but Rubio. it was so little uh, little Marco. But it was absolutely you got that one right. It was dangerous. <laughs> it was really dangerous that we let a, we took so much joy in the blood sport, and that was all that was covered. Last question, because I know you guys are busy doing your seven hundred podcasts. So thank you for spending time with me. Likelihood zero to one hundred. That Trump wins a second term. Oh, God. out of the prediction we business. <laughs> Nobody. We made a decision. Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. Flip of a coin. All, Let's do that. Look, we said we're not going to worry about how, about about what what would happen. We're going to talk more about what should happen. So we're going to do what we can to stop that from happening. So we're not sh- doing any predictions. Should he win a second term? Hundred <laughs> percent, oh, zero to hundred, zero to hundred. I think the, the, the important point is we don't know. No one has a crystal ball, but we all have agency. We all can put him out of a job if we try hard enough. Yeah, and those of us who think he shouldn't have a second term should be prepared for the fact that he could get one. Absolutely, that's that's what we should yes. keep in mind. Absolutely, but it's absolutely possible. We, <laughs> it is, and I do believe that. Absolutely, I mean, I mean, Donald Trump can win a second term, and we have to do everything we can to stop it. On that note. Thanks, Preet. Thanks, gentlemen. It's really a pleasure. So now it's the time in the program where I talk about something in the news that that moved me or struck me. And and this week, it's something that's a bit personal to myself. In the last few days, I was reminded by something I saw on Twitter that it was the 15th anniversary of the death of a gentleman by the name of John Rawls. John Rawls was perhaps one of the most towering figures in legal and political philosophy in the country in the 20th century and actually in the world. He spent his life thinking about how to construct in a thoughtful way what he called a theory of justice. In fact, he wrote a book that's very famous in a lot of circles called A Theory of Justice in 1971. And I never heard of the book and I didn't know a lot about political theory and how democratic institutions are supposed to work. But when I got to college, I began to study political science and in particular political theory and and read all the social contract theorists, people like Immanuel Kant, Jacques Rousseau and others. And this was a person who had made a name for himself for being incredibly thoughtful and thinking about how civilized society in democratic countries should order themselves to protect both liberty and equality, and to figure out how the people who have less could have the same opportunities as the people who had more. I'm oversimplifying by a lot, but that's the kind of thing that John Rawls spent a lot of time, not in political life, but in academia, thinking about. He's not someone who died in the 17th century, someone who lived during my own lifetime, and I had the honor and privilege not only of studying his work when I was in college, but actually taking a class with him. And I was just reminded in thinking about the old days of reading his book, uh, there was a particular thing he did that I think he's known for, and that is he developed a theory of justice and how democratic societies should order themselves and how we can all work for the greater good. But he took very seriously objections that were made to his theory. And as you might imagine, it's been a long time for me, but for the young people listening, there's a lot of chatter in the ivory tower and somebody writes something and someone else 
publishes an article attacking it, I think somewhat uniquely among political thinkers, John Rawls took very seriously criticisms that were made. And so instead of remaining static with his own theory written in 1971, he spent his remaining years trying to refine his theory, responding to critics and always respectfully and I think also modestly. And in this age of attack and counterattack and a preference to criticize people's motives and personalities rather than their thoughts and ideas, this was a man who, even when attacked for what he thought was right, responded with complete open-mindedness and an effort to persuade the other person. He didn't just retreat to his corner and say, I'm right and you're wrong. And the back and forth in some ways between him and other folks on what justice means and how you achieve it is incredibly important. And so in a lot of ways, particularly in modern times, almost as important as having a good idea and a good thought is the temperament to listen to other people's good ideas and thoughts, but also to have the humility to change your own mind and revise your own positions. It would be great if we saw more of that. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, John Favreau, John Lovett, and Tommy Vitor from Pod Save America. And thank you for listening. If you like the show, and I hope you do, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And transcripts are always available on cafe.com. Send me your questions about news and politics, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.